0: Most of you are aware that over the last few Sundays we have been steadily working our way through the Ten Commandments. And today we're coming to the Seventh Commandment. And our scripture reading this morning is a little different. We have two scripture readings, in fact. A very brief one from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which you will find on page 118. But could you also flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11? As we're reading verses 1 through 5 and then verse 26. And you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I understand what you're doing. But why are we having two passages of Scripture this morning? Because the first looks at the seventh commandment. And then the second reading, the longer reading, illustrates the significance and importance of that commandment in one of the Scripture's great characters. David, And so we're beginning with Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, then Second Samuel chapter 11, and our second scripture reading will be found on page 486. So first of all, Exodus 20, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And then over to Second Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messages to get messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Then over to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Now, as we begin to explore the seventh commandment this morning, I want to ask you, please, if you would use your imagination. And I want to imagine that over the last 48 hours, you have had surgery and you're still in hospital. And you had the removal of your appendix. An emergency appendectomy in fact. And you've been slowly recovering. But you're now on the second day in hospital, you've woken up, it's relatively early in the morning, you've had your breakfast and yesterday the doctors were very pleased with your progress. The surgical wound was healing nicely, You you have managed to get up, walk around a little with the help of a walker, you slept well last night and for all intents and purposes all seems to be going well. Doctors late yesterday afternoon said if you have a good night, if your appetite is back, if you feel you're functioning normally, then we will discharge you late morning or perhaps early afternoon. But when you woke up this morning, the sight of the wound was a little tender. And you were beginning to feel a little hot. And you were reasonably convinced there was a mild temperature there. And overall, you're not feeling quite as well as the night before, and you begin to think, well, my body's been through surgery. That's a little traumatic for anyone. And maybe this is my body simply reacting to the surgery. Then after breakfast, you feel a little less comfortable. You're now pretty convinced your temperature is going up. But when the doctor comes to see you to finally say, we're going to let you go, The doctor is not overly concerned and says, no, I think you're fine, I think you're right, your body's uncomfortable, you're not feeling well, there's a little tenderness there, and we kind of expect that 48 hours after significant surgery, especially emergency surgery, but the wound is good and given you were walking yesterday and you've had breakfast this morning, I think you're fine, we'll send you home. Come back and see me in about two weeks, we'll examine the wound, we'll remove the dressing, we'll start getting you back to normal lifestyle. How would you feel? What would you say? How would you respond knowing that there's something not quite right there, but the doctor's saying it's not a big deal? Now, what if you are discharged and you go home and you are, in fact, struggling with a post-operative infection and it becomes pretty nasty? And... You go back to ER, they take you back in, they give you high-powered antibiotics, they keep you for another couple of days, and your original doctor comes back to see you and you say, Doctor, why did you send me home when I told you that my temperature was increasing, that I wasn't feeling well, the wound site was pretty tender and sore? And he says, well, actually, I really wanted you to go home with a good experience at the hospital. We tried to create a loving and warm atmosphere. We tried to be encouraging and supportive of patients. And we know patients don't like to stay in indefinitely, and so we wanted to send you home with our blessing in the hope that all would be well. Would that be satisfactory? I suspect not. What you needed above all things was an accurate diagnosis of what was going on. And this morning, in looking at the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We're looking at the life of David. One of Israel's greatest kings, if not the greatest king, a giant, spiritually speaking, in his own right. And we're looking at one of the lowest points in the life of David. And Scripture gives us, an accurate diagnosis of what was going on in the life of David. And if we are ever to grow and mature and develop in our faith and in our relationship with Christ, being realistic and accurate about the impact and influence of sin in our life will be challenged by us regularly, consistently Because we need an accurate diagnosis of our spiritual condition with God. And so that's where we're heading this morning in terms of exploring the seventh commandment. Sometimes Sunday morning can be for us a little uncomfortable. Sometimes we leave feeling encouraged and strengthened. We leave feeling the love and grace of God. But other times we find His chastening rod he speaks into her life. So he gets her attention. And you may well feel a little of that this morning. Now remember who David was. David anointed as a young adult. I like to think of David probably somewhere around 17 to 19 when he's anointed by Samuel to be Israel's next king. King Saul was misbehaving badly. And God selected and anointed David to be the next king. Imagine how you would have felt if a prophet turned up in your front yard and said to your family, she's the one, he's the one. And then within months, you go and visit your brothers on the front line of battle and the entire army is fearful of Goliath. And David steps up because David was more impressed with God than he was Goliath. Remember the shepherd boy who wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down beside green pastures. He restores my soul. That's David. David. And when you come to the context of this story, David is probably now 50 years old. For the last 25 or, yeah, I think we can say 20 to 25 years, he had demonstrated outstanding leadership. Incredible wisdom as a king. A willingness to depend on God profoundly as he provided spiritual leadership for an entire nation. He had experienced numerous victories on the battlefield with warring neighbors. He'd established Jerusalem as the center and capital city of Israel. He had so much to be thankful for. And by the time you come to Second Samuel 11, David is standing tall. One of the great Old Testament leaders. Demonstrating grace and honor and integrity. He had the support of the nation. He had wealth and power and influence. And David was large and in charge. All was going well. And then in chapter 11, things begin to change. Notice the opening words. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. David no longer had his finger on the pulse. He was sitting back, resting, taking it easy. And the change in David's life is as it is for many of us. It is subtle and slow and silent. You almost can't see it. And in the midst of all of that was happening, the change that was, as we said, subtle and slow and silent, was hard to discern. And David was, of course, familiar with the Ten Commandments. I imagine David agreed with every one of them. And yet, when it comes to the Seventh Commandment, why did he find it convenient to ignore it? What was going on in David's mind? Could it be that he convinced himself as king, having, as scripture tells us, around 200 wives and concubines? It was a show of force, show of demonstration of power to neighboring kings to say, We're just like you. A powerful, independent ruler. Our import export could not be better. The economy is prospering. We are seeing significant construction across the nation. All is well. And incidentally, I'm David. Think of all I have sacrificed, all I have given up to be king. Think of the places I've taken us as a nation. And I agree that the Ten Commandments should be applied to everyone. It's good for our culture, it's good for our society. But I'm a king. And if I want to add one more wife to 200, what difference does it make? I'm not hurting anyone. There's no big deal here. We're in the midst of the most prosperous time of our lives as a nation. Sure, it's good for people to keep the seventh commandment, but I'm doing no harm. Principles don't apply to me. And when you find yourself Convincing yourself that you are the exception to the commands and purposes of God, you are on thin ice, to say the least. And that's exactly what is happening here. Because the remainder of the chapter shows one horrific event after another after another after another as the seductive addictive enslaving power of sin captures the heart and mind and soul of david and we're about to see the darkest period in his entire life now rather than give you a take you through it verse by verse because we simply don't have time this morning it would take us several sundays to do that allow me to give you a summary of what's happening we saw in verses one through five that david was relaxing at home he had sent joab out to fight for him and he notices a beautiful lady bathing while he's standing on the roof of the palace one evening He calls for a servant and he sends the servant to go and find out who this lady is. As you know, her name is Bathsheba. The servant comes back and says, She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We know her family. Then David sends for Bathsheba. And an affair begins. And then David sends to Joab and says, please send Uriah back to Jerusalem, which he does. And David befriends Uriah, encourages him to get drunk, hoping that he will go home, then go back to the battlefield, and in several weeks' time, when he hears that his wife is expecting, Uriah will be very happy and comfortable with that arrangement. But that's not what happens. Uriah refuses to go home and see his wife and family, And in fact, he sleeps on hard ground somewhere because Uriah says, I will not go and see my wife and family and experience their love and comfort and care while my men are on the battlefield. And so David invites Uriah back for another evening of whining and dining and goes through the same experience, and Uriah refuses again. And so David sends him back to the front line with a letter, and the letter is to Joab. And Joab is told, put Uriah at the most dangerous point in the front line, then have our men step back, desert him, and leave him, and he will forfeit his life. And that's exactly what happens. And Uriah is dead. And then we discover, of course, that Bathsheba hears of his death and she mourns, and she mourns deeply. So my question is this. What on earth has happened to David Where is the man who was profoundly dependent on God for every aspect of his life? His personal, private life, his public life, his reign as a king, as an international leader, a spiritual giant. Think of the numbers of Psalms that David has written, almost more than 70. In fact, he is described in the book of Acts as a man after God's own heart. So, what's happened? Why has David lowered himself to manipulation and conspiracy and abuse of authority, adultery and murder? What is going on in the life of David? And the first point I want to make is this. That whenever sin comes in an attractive, enticing package and draws us into whatever that sin may be, please, please, please understand this. That sin almost never fills the heart and mind of the Christian with hatred for God. Almost never. But what it does do is that it fills the heart and mind with apathy and indifference and forgetfulness. And before we know it, we have turned our back on him, treated him with contempt, and we're heading in the opposite direction. Slowly, subtly, silently. And we're there before we even know it. The first lesson. Second lesson is this. We are not always at our weakest when we're going through challenging and difficult days. Because challenging and difficult days forces us to our knees. But when success and power and influence and congratulations come our way and all is going well and there is a sense of contentment and ease and self-reliance, then comes pride. And at the point of his greatest need, where David needed an accurate diagnosis, Pride was dominating his life because David felt like a king. David was unaccountable, influential. No one to tell him no, or don't, or please think again. It didn't feel like sin what David was doing, David felt powerful. He felt contentment. He was orchestrating and engineering not only his own lives, but the lives of everyone around him in order to get his own way. And he stoops, as we said earlier, to deception, manipulation, conspiracy, cruelty, ultimately murder. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul Writing of the subtle, silent, slow, enslaving power of sin writes this Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed. Notice what he says put to death. You can't negotiate with sin. You can't rationalize with it. You can't sit down and have a logical discussion. Because it is emotionally enticing, attractive, deceptive, addictive. It has a tranquilizing effect on the heart and mind and soul. And when you have your back turned and when you are walking away from Him... That's the point when he calls us to put to death sinful desires and passions. And Paul is pointed in all that he is saying. Now allow me please to be incredibly practical in the next two minutes. Several months ago I came across an article in churchleadership.com and there there was a very helpful outline and it was called habits, let me make sure I've got it absolutely right, he says, unhealthy habits that can lead to disaster in a marriage. And the first was this. If you're engaging in texts, emails, and conversations you would not want your spouse to be aware of, you may be in trouble. Stop it. If you're dressing to impress someone other than your spouse, stop it. You create opportunities to be alone with someone other than your spouse, it needs to stop. You're having consistent fantasies about someone other than your spouse, there is no place for that in the heart and mind and soul of the Christian. You're regularly comparing your spouse to this other person. Please, 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 please please stop. You're planning another life with this person. And you are living out fantasies in your mind. And when it begins in the mind, it slowly, silently, subtly moves to the heart. And that's exactly what we saw In David, standing on a rooftop, thinking it's no big deal, and his mind begins to work, and he sends for Bathsheba. And sin will never, ever tell you, ever tell you that what is taking place is the beginning of a long, slow, dead end road that will dehumanize you degrade you and everyone else around you stop but when we come to chapter 12 change comes once again and change comes once again and most of us wouldn't I don't think have picked this up in chapter 11 I was almost 25 years in ministry before I noticed it. But in chapter 11 we have a phrase that comes up again and again and again and again and again. And the phrase is David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for a servant. David sent for Joab. David sent for Uriah. And when you come into chapter 12... In the opening words, we discover the Lord sent Nathan to hold David accountable. The book of Galatians in the New Testament tells us this. God is not mocked. Be sure your sins will find you out. And Nathan appears before David and holds David Accountable. And in a morning like this, when we gather around this communion table and we look at this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, we recognize that David struggled with integrity and authenticity and purity. That he exploited Bathsheba. He manipulated Joab and Uriah and everyone around him. He shamelessly conspired to take the life of Uriah. And please notice this. David was now determining who would live and who would die. He's taken the place of God. Do you see that? And he'd become like Saul. And on this morning, we're reminded of another passage of Scripture. David sent, David sent, David sent, David sent. The Lord sent Nathan. And we remember, for God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. And Christ came into this world to deal with those moments in our lives when we turn our back on Him and treat Him with indifference and apathy and contempt. Christ came into the world to go to Calvary, to sacrifice himself for our sin. He didn't come simply as a good example, although he certainly was that. He didn't come just to show us how to live or be a good teacher. He accomplished all of that. But he came into the world to go to Calvary because of our sin. It was our sin that sent him there. Remember the words of the hymn writer? And so this morning, as we come to this table and we remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, please understand and grasp the enormity of this. There is no sin so heinous, no place so dark, no valley so deep, no barrier so high the love and grace of Almighty God can no longer encompass you. Please don't give in to that. For His love is so much greater than we could ask or imagine. And He draws us to this table and powerfully reminds us of His love for each of us. And so this morning, as we turn from the horrific, toxic, demeaning nature of sin, we do this in remembrance of Him. Please join me as we pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder from the life of David that even when we fall and fall badly and radically, your love is still so much greater than any of our sins. We ask now as we come to this communion table that you would remind us of that love, that you would indeed write it upon the tablets of our hearts because we know and give thanks That before the throne of God above, we have one who brings on our behalf a strong and perfect plea. Father, bless us please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.